If you like what you hear, come and visit me at youtube.com slash tiptoe the tank and see this content in all its glory. If you would like to support the channel, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. More information in the description below. For years, Jessie Faden was alone. Polaris was quiet. Doctors had tried to convince her that what had happened at her hometown, ordinary, it was just an industrial accident. Her parents and her brother were dead, but she never believed it. She knew that they were wrong. She never doubted herself, what she saw and what she felt. So she ran, she kept moving. The Federal Bureau of Control always kept tabs on her, was always watching from the shadows, a gaze that Jessie felt but she couldn't quite pinpoint. But they let her live her own life. Director Zachariah Trench never ordered her brought in. Dr. Casper Darling was content with her brother, Dylan Faden, as a research subject, a participant in the Prime Candidate Program. But as the author Alan Wake wrote it to be, Polaris would return to give Jesse Faden guidance when the time was right. Jesse knew that she needed to be in New York City at a very certain location at a very specific time. She didn't know precisely why. She knew it had something to do with her brother and her past, but the specifics didn't matter. Her guiding star was always true. But we must know and understand what happened at the FBC just before her arrival, what Wake did and did not influence, so that all of this makes sense. Using the slide projector altered item taken from the town of Ordinary, expeditions had been carried out into the only remaining slide, the one labeled Hand, the homeworld of Polaris. The FBC called it Slidescape 36. It was a desert world, one so completely infused with resonance that sound didn't exist there. A number of agents died during those expeditions from exposure to that immense resonance. From that slide, they brought something back, another paranatural entity that Dr. Darling called Hedron. The easiest way to look at Hedron is that it's like the broadcasting antenna of Polaris. It's its own entity, its own physical being, and it's not where Polaris came from, but Polaris can transmit from Hedron. Hedron was the original conduit that passed Polaris on to Jesse. Polaris was strongest when close to Hedron, yet the two were not codependent. A very special holding area was created to house Hedron within the oldest house, and Dr. Darling became absolutely fixated on it. He thought it was the greatest discovery ever made by the FBC. Darling exposed himself to more and more of Hedron's resonance, and while it didn't harm him, he began to see things, and it frightened him. He believed Hedron was trying to tell him something, to warn him of something. Darling became aware of another source of resonance, something that would doom all of them if it reached them. He became paranoid and obsessed with stopping it. Darling created HRAs, Hedron Resonance Amplifiers, personal shields against this insidious resonance that he so feared was coming. So long as someone was wearing their HRA, they would be as safe as possible. But many within the FBC thought it was ridiculous, they refused to wear it, and were combative with Dr. Darling and his secrets. Darling was many things, and poor communicator was certainly one of them. His erratic behavior and insistence on withholding information made him a hard man to trust. But the beginning of the end came when director Zachariah Trench, Dr. Darling's best friend, was exposed to the hostile resonance. They didn't realize that this hostile resonance was within Slidescape 36, the homeworld of Hedron and Polaris. The paranatural entities had stopped it there, stopped it from leaving that place, but it still impacted Zachariah Trench. As a result, Trench and Darling came to conflict with one another, each under very different sources of stress, impacted by very different types of resonance, and each experiencing very different paranoias. Darling was under the effect of Hedron's resonance, and he wanted to protect the FBC from the hostile resonance. Meanwhile, Trench, under the effects of the hostile resonance, wanted to protect the FBC from Hedron's resonance. 
It was Director Trench that drew blood first. Under the maddening effects of the hostile resonance, he went to where the slide projector was being stored and he took it. No one knew where he took it, but he took with him a very specific burnt slide and he put it into the slide projector. It opened a doorway to the homeworld of what would eventually become known as the Hiss. Remember, Alan Wake knew that to stop the Dark Presence, to save himself, to possibly save the world, to be free from the Dark Place, he would need a hero. He could not create people, he could not create events, create paranatural entities, but he could write the events that would bring them together, perhaps sooner than otherwise would have happened. The invaders would be paranatural, beings of hostile resonance. They would speak in random, nonsensical sentences, words cut together, just plastic, you want to dream, repeat the word, baby, 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 yeah, orange peel, you are home. Trench believed that releasing the Hiss would save the Bureau, that it would save them all. Control points around the oldest house were taken over by the Hiss. Shifts began to occur. Employees without HRAs were infected by them and taken over. Most would just chant Alan Wake's daughter's poem, suspended in the air like puppets. Other employees would change, turn dangerous and hostile to all around them. Dr. Darling himself was already gone. He knew that he would be before the terrible events began. He never shared what Hedron told him. He didn't seem to know what would happen, but Dr. Darling, he vanished completely. And Trench, after he released the hiss, returned to his office and shot himself with his service weapon, the object of power. The oldest house went into complete lockdown, no one in or out. Everything quarantined, everything isolated. Some survivors managed to get to safe areas, awaiting something, anything. When Jessie Faden arrived at that spot in New York City, what she found before her was a building quite out of place. Jessie Faden saw the oldest house, a proverbial blind spot for all who passed it by. No one just sees the oldest house unless they know to see the oldest house. It's a place out of existence that's in plain sight, and she sees it. Jessie Faden enters the oldest house completely on her own. The lockdown does not apply to her, and inside, there's not a soul to be seen. No one responds to her calls, and the first clue of something amiss are words on a really retro old monitor. Internal lockdown in effect. Building lockdown in effect. Multiple containment breaches detected. Multiple building shifts detected. Head of research override. HRA protocol activated. Exploring around, she recognizes the seal of the FBC. She saw it a long time ago, and she has seen it in her dreams. She feels that she's been looking for this place for years, never knowing that it was hiding in plain sight until now. Then, an interesting character appears, Adi, the janitor. But there's something unusual about him, isn't there? Why is the janitor completely unbothered and continuing his cleaning duties while this building is on emergency lockdown? Well... Adi is a paranatural entity that plays by his own rules. He just sort of appeared within the oldest house a very long time ago, and he takes care of it. For a while, the FBC tried to figure Adi out, but after a few, um, incidents, it was ordered that the faculty leave Adi alone. So his true nature, his power, his wants, all that are a bit of a mystery. But he greets Jesse as his assistant. She's here about the new job, right? She needs to go to the interview. Take the elevator, tell them that he sent her. And while she thinks about him being a friendly face, Audie comments aloud on her own internal monologue. There is something very special about this fellow. But there's apparently an interview that needs to take place, so there's no time to waste. Jesse speaks to Polaris as though they're old friends. Polaris is a comfort, a helper, a confidant. Jesse only wants to find her brother, Dylan. 
She'll walk into hell if it means finding him, and this is where she needs to be. The elevator has taken her to the corridors outside the office of the director, and inside she finds a dead man, a gun beside him. Polaris tells her to pick up the weapon, which Jesse is really uncertain of. That's probably the murder weapon. Is it really wise to handle it? After a great deal of hesitation, she does it. She picks up the object of power, not knowing what she's doing. This is her first test. The board is aware of her presence and begins processing her application. While they compute, she holds the gun to her own head, awaiting their judgment. They allow her into the astral plane to see if she can walk it, to see if she can utilize paranatural energies. There, the gun is waiting for her and an order from the board to control it. She puts her hand on it once again and for a moment they struggle, but it's ever so brief. The service weapon binds to her and she shoots down the obstacles that are placed before her by the board. She has passed their test. Jesse Faden will be the new director of the Federal Bureau of Control. The board congratulates her on her appointment, and then she sees Zachariah Trench. He has a message about a coming threat and the duty of the director to keep the Bureau safe. Though she has been chosen, this doesn't mean that she understands. This is a strange new world that she's entering, but she's happy, happy to be here. Beyond the doors of her new office, she sees her foe wearing the skin of its victims, the hiss, the reason for the lockdowns, it immediately attacks her and tries to overtake her, infect her, another victim. And it hurts Jessie. It terrifies her. It's all-consuming. But Polaris steps in. Polaris stops it. Like Hedron's resonance via the HRAs kept its wearer safe, Polaris will keep Jessie safe from hostile resonance of the Hiss. She got a taste of it, though, and to her, it was horror. The service weapon will also keep her safe for now, to cut through the Hiss in the oldest house. Occasionally, the dead man, Zachariah Trench, he speaks to her, giving her directions. He says to find the hotline, whatever that is. This whole place is weird on a new level. For example, her photo is already framed as the director of the FBC. Some things can be explained, Dr. Darling's special little videos, his introductions to paranatural topics. They help fill in some of the blanks. They explain words, terminology, the rules that this place plays by. But for the most part, she'll have to figure out things as she goes. In Central Executive, an inverted triangle hangs over something that seems to be emitting Hiss resonance, and from it emerges a Hiss-infected ranger, a once-agent with the FBC trained to handle thresholds and to go on expeditions, a dangerous foe protecting the area. Once it's dead, the dead man Zachariah Trench appears again, ordering her to cleanse control points, which must be what this is, a control point. She has no idea what cleansing it means, but with Polaris's help, Jessie is able to send away the Hiss infestation here. With the control point under her control, the walls stop moving. The halls will remain stationary, and while those infected by the Hiss still remain, the hostile resonance cannot claim any new victims. From a nearby shelter comes a voice, calling Jessie over, asking who she is, if she's sane, if she's with the Bureau. And Jessie is all too happy to make the acquaintance of someone who's not off their rocker. And this is Emily Pope, Dr. Darling's assistant. Jessie gives her name after a brief deliberation on whether or not she should lie about it. Pope already knows that she is the new director, and this is wonderful news. She wastes no time in getting her up to speed. They decide on officially calling the hostile resonance the hiss, like the sound of poison gas leaking in. They share as much as they can. Emily explains the lockdown, the importance of the HRAs for protection. Jessie explains that the old director is dead. She has a service weapon now, and that Trench keeps appearing to her with directions. 
Pope asks her to try cleansing the people to see if she can push the hiss out of the living, like a paranatural resonance exorcism of some sort. And Jesse gives it a try, but no good. It won't work. It kills the person. So those who have been infected by the hiss, they really are lost. The two women chat for a while, exchange as much information as they can. Jesse doesn't really know Emily Pope yet, but she likes her, so she talks to her about where she's from, Ordinary. The FBC was involved in the incident, and she's been searching for this place for a very long time. But she holds back on talking about Dylan. Pope has spent a lot of her time here in the dark. Remember, Dr. Darling was a poor sharer of knowledge, a terrible communicator, and she couldn't get classified information. But she can start digging since there's no one around to object to that anymore. They need to know more about all of this, and she is just the intrepid mind that they need to find that information. Pope urges her to go find the hotline, the director's line to the board. If the old director has been telling Jesse to do that, then they need to listen. Right now, the hotline is in the communications department through the mailroom, but she warns Jesse that the head of communications, Tomasi, he probably didn't have an HRA on, so there will probably be trouble when she arrives. Emily Pope will be an open book, a researcher, a full support character, and a confidant for Jesse. When things seem murky or unclear, she can return to Pope for clarification and insights. Topics like the origins of the Hiss, information about the oldest house, who Trench was, what objects of power are, what the HRAs do. But for now, time to go find that hotline. There's no small number of bodies strewn along the hallways to the communications department. And there's loads of Hiss. Their nonsense sentences and babbling is grating, and that you can't make sense of it adds to the frustration. It's just noise. There's no real message being sent. This will be her new norm, but retaking control points and pushing the hiss out will bring a bit of safety and quiet to each area that she can reclaim. En route, she finds her first object of power being controlled by the hiss, and based on Pope's guidance and notes that she's found, she knows that she needs to cleanse it, just like the control points. It's an old floppy disk, and since she is the director and objects of power gain their power from the board in the astral plane, she is able to touch it once it is cleansed. Project Northmore, the director before Zachariah Trench, he did this a lot. He took abilities from objects of power. And although he was a powerful para-utilitarian, he didn't have the defenses that Polaris provides to Jesse. And he was intrinsically a little greedy. Northmore took it to such an extreme that he had to take an early retirement. From the floppy, Jesse learned how to pull in and launch things. She can use them like projectiles. And Jesse will find many objects of power as she goes that she can take abilities from. This is just one of many. Before she leaves the astral plane, her training ground, the board warns her that the Hiss are seeking the astral plane. She does find the head of communications, Tomasi, in the mailroom, and he is a new type of Hiss. He can fly, he's fast, he's hyper-aggressive. Once Jesse whittles his health down, he has the sense to leave the area. She's proving herself to be an extremely capable director. Past the mailroom is the chamber holding the hotline, and it's ringing. But there's no path to the chamber itself, the ghost man, Zachariah Trench. He appears to tell her about the Ocean View Motel, a place of dream logic. He tells her, light switch cord, then door with black pyramid. That's all the guidance that she needs from him. She finds a light switch cord, and she follows the directions posted for how to use it. The law of three applies, and on the third pole, she is taken to the Ocean View Motel and Casino. This place is like a hub, connecting different places, dimensions, realities. It's dream logic. Where the doors lead to can change, but the motel itself is the same. It's a place of power. The motel and the light switch cord are somehow linked, connected. But much like the oldest house, this place of power plays by its own rules, and they're nigh impossible to really pin down. 
But the door with the black pyramid, the symbol of the board, that is her goal. It will lead her to where she needs to go, in this case, the hotline. If in the future she has a different need, then it will lead her to that other place. She finds the key to the door in one of the back rooms and gets on her way. And while she's not in any danger walking around the motel, it's not a place to be snooping around, not a place to try forcing doors open. In the room that she has been allowed access, there's another cord, three poles, and it takes her to the hotline chamber walkway. This is for the FBC director only. And that hotline, it's still ringing. On the other end is the board, and they have another challenge for her. In this astral plane arena, the hotline is ringing on the other side. She needs to reach it. She needs to get through a miniature obstacle course patrolled by some really nasty paranatural energies. Picking up the ringing phone once again grants her a reward. First, a crash course on objects of power and the hotline from Dr. Darling himself, and then a fully realized message from former director Zachariah Trench, an echo of him in life. This time, telling her that the director needs a team. She cannot function as a lone entity. She needs trusted staff, capable of handling the many secrets of the FBC alongside her. He tells her who he trusted, people that she should find if they're still alive. The hotline will be accessible to her at all times now. She can listen to messages from Trench, and she will have direct contact with the board and the astral plane. Trench gave her some names, people that she needs to track down. Her best course of action will be returning to Emily Pope. Pope is all too happy to hear about Jesse's adventures. They share information about Trench's old management team, what they know so far about their fates. Their best bet for help in getting to the bottom of this is Trench's head of operations, Helen Marshall. She is a tough woman, former CIA, leader of the Rangers. She went to the research sector to secure HRA production and she never came back. That will be Jesse's next target. Because of the lockdown, she can't just waltz around the oldest house though. Directorial override can be done in the maintenance sector. If she can get that done, then she will be able to go to other parts of the oldest house. Walking down the hallway towards the elevator, a familiar melodic voice suddenly chimes in. It's Audie, the supposed janitor. He tells his assistant that he would like for her to meet him in maintenance. And no one would dare ignore a request from Audie, so of course she will. And Jesse is well aware that Audie is not human, he is a part of this place. She's not sure anymore if it was Polaris or Audie that got her in the front door through the lockdown. It sort of feels like Audie made the elevator that took her to executive just appear. But he's a friendly face in her book. She has no fear of Audie. She reclaims some control points, kills a number of his infected on her way, cleanses an object of power, watches an episode of The Threshold Kids, and finds Audie in his office. He's as happy as Audie can be to have a new assistant. Jesse asks him if he can help her with the override, and of course he can. Easy peasy, it's just around the corner, actually. But first he wants her to do some work. You see, there's a vermin problem that he needs her to handle. Whatever it is has already mucked up the cooling pumps and power generators of the power plant. Remember, the power plant is the NSC, the Northmore Sarcophagus Container. It is literally where Project Northmore has taken his retirement. The man was an unstable, ticking time bomb of paranatural powers. If the NSC is destabilized or if it blows up, they can all kiss their asses goodbye. Audie is going on vacation soon, he says. There are side jobs on the task board that she can take to help out around the oldest house if she wants. He gives her a key to the power plant and off she goes to find this vermin problem that Audie once handled. The NSC power plant is massive. There is still faculty here, defending it from the hiss. Thankfully, they all had HRAs on. Jesse cleanses a nearby control point and makes the acquaintance of Chief Simon Arish, FBC Security. He's been the lead here since this whole hiss invasion thing began. 
The head of security, Salvador, he vanished when things went to hell. All the folks down here really know about the NSC is to keep it under a certain temperature, it's the power source for the Bureau, and to never open it. His crews have been trying to do repairs on the pumps and the generators, but they keep getting shot at by the hiss. They can't get anything done. They need help. He said that Dr. Darling seemed to know that this place would be a target for the hiss, but he never really explained himself. They were as prepared as they could be with the information that they had. Jesse goes all around the sector, repairing coolant pumps and energy converters, killing hiss, cleansing control points, unclogging pipes of paranatural turds, and doing odd jobs for Adi. It is a hell of a series of tasks, and she ticks them off one by one. Once the power plant is safe and secured, she goes to the NCS control room, where the directorial override is. The service weapon itself is the key, ensuring that only the director can perform this task. And just like that, easy peasy, the lockdown is lifted. And she herself is well equipped to handle whatever may come. Time to finally get back to Emily Pope and scheme another plan. Back in the executive sector, Jessie opens up to Pope a bit more about why she's actually here. She didn't come here to be the director. She came here looking for her brother, Dylan Faden. She talks about ordinary the slide projector, how the slides open doorways, and she takes her chances telling Pope about Polaris. Jessie tells her that after the slide projector incident, the FBC arrived and tried to take both her and her brother away. She escaped. Dylan didn't. It's a leap of faith trusting Pope like this, but she is attentive, inquisitive, and supportive. She doesn't know about what happened at Ordinary, about the slide projector, about Dylan. It was all far too classified for her position. After Jessie first mentioned it, she tried to find information, but there wasn't much about it. She knows that both Trench and Darling were directly involved, and, well, both of them are gone now. There's something in the containment sector reserved for the Ordinary AWE, but she doesn't know what's actually left in there. While Pope wasn't able to access classified files regarding Ordinary, she was able to monitor Jessie and run some tests on her para-utilitarian abilities, and she found it closely matched a case file coded P6, which she recognized as a prime candidate mark. It was alongside a file marked Hedron, which relates to the HRAs, which Helen Marshall went to secure after the hiss attack. So, again, Marshall is their best lead. And with the lockdown now lifted, Jessie can finally reach her in the research sector. And now it's just an elevator ride away. The oldest house truly is a wonder. Like, how do the trees grow here? Who planted them? How long has it been here? It's a strangely lovely place and lots of vegetation to enjoy alongside the raging hiss infected. She needs to find parapsychology, and it's quite a venture roaming the halls to try to locate it. This place is absolutely massive. There were a number of questionable choices made by higher-ups that are made very clear in research, namely stingy budgets and carelessness with human lives. It was the wild west of study and development, but a lot of people got hurt or killed in the process of studying paranatural energies and things from the astral plane. What's happened with the hiss? Well, it was only a matter of time. When you play with fire, eventually you're gonna get burned. Jessie makes contact with Marshall, first via an intercom, and hearing the name Faden sparks interest in Marshall. She sends Jessie an elevator, and finally the two of them meet. Marshall knows that a new director means that Trench is dead, and she's very no-nonsense to the point about it. She tells the new director that they need to secure the HRA production area if they're going to make it out of this, but they haven't been able to break through the his forces. Jessie volunteers to clear it out, not that she really has a choice. She sort of feels like Marshall is testing her on this, but Marshall promises that once the hiss are gone, they will talk more. Specifically, they'll talk more about Dylan. The director is meant to be the last line of defense for the Bureau. That Jessie is having to do all of this means that things are beyond dire. 
But as is her duty as the director, she must do everything within her power to safeguard the Bureau and the people in it, even if it means breaking her own bones and bleeding out. It's one hell of a fight to retake the sector, but the director manages to clear out most of the Hiss and reclaim its control points. The walls stop moving, no more Hiss can move in, and Marshall's team can get to work, further securing the oldest house. Jessie moves her way down to Dr. Darling's old HRA lab, gets it open, and waits for Marshall to meet her down there. It takes a beat to get the HRA machine back online. Nothing here is easy. A special material called Blackrock is used to make the HRAs. And unfortunately, Darling's machines aren't the most dependable. Once they get it on, it breaks the Blackrock prism. They'll need more of them from the processing site down in maintenance to get the machine working again, a job only suited for the new director. Before she goes, Jessie mentions her brother, that she's been looking for him here. But Marshall says that right now there are more important things to worry about, namely the lives of her employees. And Jessie is willing to concede that for now she's right, Dylan will have to wait until this task is taken care of. So she tells Marshall of Emily Pope's basin executive and off she goes. Thankfully, she's been through maintenance before. She knows exactly how to get there. It's a quick run back and then there are clear signs directing her toward the Black Rock processing area. Of course, there are plenty of other side missions to pursue and objects of power to find, but it always leads back to that main objective. And getting there is surprisingly dangerous. It requires going around some really heavy machinery and then a trip through the Oceanview Motel. Getting the key requires some tidying up, making the rooms all look the same. It's gotta look nice and professional after all. She gets her key, goes back to the door with the black pyramid on it, pulls the cord three times and continues on her long convoluted way. Nothing here is ever easy. She comes across a friendly face, Chief Arish and some of his crew. She talks her a bit about what she's up to and he says that Dr. Darling's lab is just past processing. And that's just down the hall, except some hiss monster has decided to set up residence there. So uh, yeah, that's a problem, but he's honest and says that they've just been treading water here. Hiss just keeps showing up around the sectors that haven't had their control points reclaimed. He's losing men, he can't help her in this. It's only a matter of time before they lose ground, so Jesse tells him to gather up his men and get back up to executive where Emily Pope is, and soon where Helen Marshall will be. They'll be safe there, they can regroup and re-strategize. She will continue on to deal with that monster and then find the prisms. When she gets into the processing area, there's no monster about. There are corpses, but it's quiet. She does manage to find some of the Black Rock Prism, but they've all been shattered. Something broke them quite intentionally. And what that is finally appears. It's a monster, a hiss quite unlike anything that she has seen before. It's hard to see and even harder to hit. It's no wonder it took out so many of Arisha's men. Jessie manages to handle it, but now the issue of finding more Black Rock Prisms. She goes through Dr. Darling's lab, learns that the rocks came from a quarry beyond a threshold, and from the sounds of it, it's a pretty stable threshold. She should be able to just walk right through it. So that dig site will be her next stop. As she rides the elevator down to the threshold site and runs through the halls, she admits to herself that, for as dangerous as this is, she's having the time of her life. Even with all the death and the horror and the unexplained, she doesn't want to leave. She's happy doing this. She feels like she was meant to do this. For the first time in her life, she feels like she belongs someplace. The threshold to the Black Rock Quarry is really just like a hallway. There's nothing unusual about it other than one step you're on normal concrete and the next you're on Black Rock. It's, it's like this place belongs here. The hiss are, as always, a bit of an issue. Traversal is a bit dangerous, but the dig site makes it all worth it. It's like looking into an alien galaxy. It defies explanation and reason, and yet here it is. And, of course, the FBC is digging around through it like a bunch of excited toddlers with Tonka trucks. 
Jesse clears the excavation area of his. She sets off some charges, blows up some of the black rock, and claims a new prison for the FBC. She can only carry one with her for now. Faculty will need to come collect the rest later. But for now, it's back to Executive to speak with Helen Marshall. With the prism in their possession, HRA production can finally begin. And Marshall is straight to the point about her brother. A deal is a deal, after all. She tells Jesse that her brother is here and confirms what Emily Pope suspected. He was P6, a prime candidate. He was being groomed to be the next director, and he was damn talented. They had high hopes for him. But as he got older, he changed. He became violent. He wasn't cut out to be the director. And this makes Jesse question Polaris. Did the entity know about this? Did she intentionally withhold this information? Did she keep Jesse away on purpose? Marshall informs Jesse that Dylan is in the containment sector, in a cell of the Panopticon. Marshall says that she needs to leave to go check on something, to make sure that Hiss don't find it and touch it. She doesn't disclose to the director where she's going, great communicator, just like Darling, apparently. The Bureau is in Jesse's care while she's away. And she issues a final warning to Jesse. Dylan is dangerous. Do not let him out. The duality of how she has been treated versus Dylan's treatment leaves her confused. She doesn't know if she's a friend or a foe to these people who have so easily accepted her, yet they imprisoned her brother. And aren't they the same? Before she goes, Jesse checks in with Pope learns more about the faculty and side missions, namely more about an extremely demanding and difficult woman named Dr. Rhea Underhill. She was researching an extra-dimensional mold before the Hiss invasion started. She hasn't been heard from, and Pope would like for Jesse to drop in and check on her sometime, if time allows. And she will, eventually. She'll learn all about the absolute maddening narcissism of Rhea Underhill. Pope also explains the practical use for Blackrock. It's useful for containing altered items. It's used a lot in building projects. They could use it for so much more, though, like armor and weapons, if they experimented with it. She's got a lot of good ideas, but most of them were hindered by her boss, Dr. Darling. She does have some sort of mad scientist ideas about using his resonance for genetic alterations, so she might need to be wrangled. They talk for a while, and then the director takes her leave. It's time to move on to the Panopticon. Director Trench sort of chimes in via the hotline to give her a rundown on the importance of the Panopticon and the dangers that it holds. Altered items are not to be taken lightly. They're to be respected and contained. As director, this is a vital task for her to oversee. She must understand the importance of it. They're contained, but they're not controlled, and they don't want to be controlled. The containment sector is not doing well. There aren't many survivors or holdouts in the shelters. There are a few sorry souls that she can aid, but she needs to be quick. There's plenty else to be done. On a monitor outside the Panopticon, she sees a surveillance feed. The P6 cell has been breached, but by what isn't clear on the feed. Once at the entrance of the prison itself, Jesse makes the acquaintance of a very strange fellow, Frederick Langston, the Panopticon supervisor. He initially assumes that the new director is here for a tour, even though it is a very bad time for a tour. He's kind of oblivious, but he knows the altered items here well. He's a good warden, just really poor people skills. Langston knows who Dylan is. His cell is on the upper level in maximum security. There's currently an object of power on the loose, the Benikoff TV. The head of security, Lin Salvador, took a team in to try to contain it, but chances are they're long dead or hiss-infected. Langston can tell her more about his job, the rituals that keep the altered items happy, about objects of power, and his thoughts on Zachariah Trench. But at the end of the day, the only way she's really going to know what's waiting for her is to just go in and see. There are plenty of his to be dealt with in here. Tough bastards, too. 
But there are also several altered items that she can sort of sightsee and learn about. Very mundane looking things like a mail deposit box and a simple picnic basket and a refrigerator that, God, a poor guy has to stare at nonstop since this whole debacle began because Langston forgot to send his replacement and if he looks away it might kill him or break loose or God knows what. But that object of power is on the fourth floor. Stay on track. There are non-hostile, hiss-infected personnel floating around it, chanting that nonsense babble that they love so much. Objects of power are directly tied to the astral plane, specifically to the board. But this particular one has been infected by the hiss. And as was expected, the same thing happened to Lynn Salvador and his team. They were infected. They tried to contain the TV, but they lost their lives to the hiss in the process. To cleanse the TV, she will need to get through them. And it is a rough fight. Salvador was no slouch. Thankfully, this is a fight that she wins, but just barely. Once she gets her hands on the object of power and she cleanses it of the hiss, she's taken into another test in the astral plane. She's done a number of these now, but this time she gets the power of levitation, which just makes Jesse Faden that much cooler. She can glide and float now like a real life superhero. That will make getting around so much faster too. And now she can finally get to that P6 holding cell to search for her brother. She knew his cell had been breached, but she was still hopeful that Dylan would be here. What she finds is a destroyed holding cell and plenty of corpses. Dylan is gone. In a panic, she calls Emily Pope to tell her what's happened, and Pope says that Dylan just walked in. He's in the executive sector with her. He claims that he's been affected by the hiss, but he's different. He's giving himself up. He peacefully submits to a new holding cell, to isolation, and he's waiting for his sister to arrive. Jessie has waited 17 years for this. She gives the P6 holding cell a once-over and then starts running back through the Panopticon. En route, she passes an altered item holding room that catches her attention. It's just a blank sheet of paper, but then she sees a man, similar to how she saw the echo of Zachariah Trench when she first arrived. He's typing, talking about where fiction ends and reality begins, where he is, it's all the same. From a nearby containment procedure outline, she learns that the mystery writer might be linked to another AWE from 2010 that took place in Bright Falls, some guy named Alan Wake. She does stop to check on the refrigerator guy, lets Langston know that he messed up just forgetting about the poor dude like that. Jesse goes to help him to give him some relief, but before she can get in the room, his concentration breaks and he gets cleft in twain. Poor guy was just doing his job. But now Jessie is looking at it and she can't just leave. It might try to get her or break loose or something. So she gets hands on and she cleanses the altered item. But inside of it is a stowaway, a paranatural entity, the former. When it speaks, it sounds like the board, but she can't quite understand it. And he is a spicy meatball that picks a big old fight with the new director. She puts him in his place, as is her job, but it leaves a lot of questions. Was the former once part of the board and he got kicked out? Sounds like there may have been some real prima donnas in the mix. Not even the astral plane is free of drama, apparently. The board chimes in itself, saying that they realize the former is back, but they're not with the board anymore. Sorry, we know nothing. Also, it's competition, so sabotage the former any chance you get. Don't believe his lies. We're cooler. If you ever help the former, we'll make sure you never work in this industry again. Well, anyways, back to executive to finally see Dylan. First, she sits with Pope, and the researcher immediately begins informing her of what she's observed within Dylan. He has clearly been affected by the hiss, but he's different from anything else that she's seen. Something else is at play here, be it Polaris or maybe genetics. 
He's clearly been impacted, but he's controlling himself. Pope warns her to be careful, and then Jessie is finally off to speak with her little brother. When she enters the room that he's being held in, he doesn't immediately respond to her. At first, she seems happy to have found him after all these years, but then reality sinks in. He's trapped in his hiss babble and floating like a non-hostile infected. When she calls to him, asks if he knows her, his feet touch the ground and he makes eye contact, something that no other hiss infected has done before, and then he speaks. But he doesn't acknowledge her as though they're siblings. He speaks of Dylan Faden as though he were another person, as though this is someone or something entirely different. He says that because of Trench and Darling, he is simply P6, not Dylan. The hiss made him better. And then the babble begins, just in outburst, a show of presence. But he says that he likes to say those words. He wants to say them, and doesn't she want to say them too? When Jesse retreats to Polaris to ask her for help, Dylan senses that Polaris is here. Long ago, he rejected her, he began to see her as an enemy, and feeling Polaris here now enrages him. After another outburst, he recounts his memory of how Jesse and her brother found Polaris and of what happened with an ordinary. He holds one hell of a grudge against Polaris for not giving him powers and protection like Jesse, for not getting him out of here. When he reverts back to his hiss babble, it's like he's doing it for comfort, to calm his rage, and then he returns to speak. He informs the director that the Bureau itself opened up the door to the hiss, using the slide projector. This was all their own doing. Though he doesn't say who specifically did it, somewhere within the oldest house, the slide projector is still going. It's an open door and the hiss are coming through it. She needs to find it and shut it off. He tells her that the hiss freed him from Polaris, freed him from the Bureau. The FBC is just using her, she's like a puppet. It would be better if she just let the hiss in too, but she needs to see the sins of the Bureau within the Prime Candidate Program in the Containment Sector. He gives her the credentials to get through, and she agrees just to appease him, but she smells just a load of horse crap coming from him. She'll go look for the slide projector, but that's it. Jessie speaks with Pope briefly to inform her of what she knows and what she intends to do. Regardless of the consequences, she is going to turn off the slide projector, stop the corruption at its source, and then deal with the fallout. And while Pope doesn't really like her doing something that they can't prepare for, she agrees to help in any way that she can. It is the director's call, regardless of her own feelings. She does go to the Prime Candidate Program area to see what Dylan wanted her to see, because maybe it will help her find the slide projector. And it turns out that there's a lot of creepy information about her here. The FBC had been tracking her since ordinary, planting people into her life, obtaining private information, monitoring her movements, evaluating her from afar as a prime candidate. Along with it are notes from Casper Darling himself, talking about Ordinary and Dylan's growth. It's hard to hear him speak about Dylan and not just hate Darling. They raised a monster and they took very little responsibility. It was in the pursuit of knowledge and a better future, sure, but it cost lives. It ruined lives. And when Dylan was deemed a failed experiment, he was put into a holding cell. But even knowing all of this, it doesn't really phase Jessie. She's a tough one. None of this changes that the slide projector still needs to be shut off. None of this is the fault of the current FBC personnel. The ones who caused all this are the good old boys, the monsters of the past, and she can do better. Someone has to be better than these people. She confirms what Pope had told her earlier, that within the containment sector is an entire closed-off section dedicated to the ordinary AWE. The slide projector must be in there, which means that the end is finally within reach. 
There are a few different AWE sites stored within the containment sector. Spicy morsels for another time. Thankfully, the ordinary AWE site is very clearly marked, if a little complicated to actually reach. And the place is a big mess, not nearly as well put together as other parts of the oldest house. This place might have had minimal staffing at best. It wasn't a high traffic area, at least not by the looks of it. At the heart of the site, she finds a miniature recreation of her hometown, of Ordinary. It's a very strange thing to have been built and then just left. And then down a few hallways, she finds the literal Ordinary garbage dump. The entire thing was relocated here 17 years ago, after the AWE. Researching, studying, to recreate the environment that the slide projector ran in, they pulled this off in complete secrecy, moved an entire town's dump into some building in the middle of New York City, which is pretty impressive. While there are plenty of his to deal with, there's no slide projector here. It doesn't seem to be anywhere around here, actually. It's not until she finally tracks down an old video log from Dr. Darling that she knows where to go. He had set up a brand new department after Hedron had been discovered, but before it actually had been brought over into Earth. Dimensional research in the research sector. The slide projector was transferred there. The ordinary site was left as is once that decision was made. Thus, why there wasn't really a lot going on in this place. Now, the thing about dimensional research. To reach it, you have to go through the ashtray maze. Now, if you're not equipped to go through the ashtray maze, then you're not getting through it. And Jesse is not equipped, but good old Adi has left a message for anybody who needs to go through. Contact him if you do, because after all, the janitor always has the keys. His office was in maintenance, and hopefully he's still there, because he had mentioned going on vacation soon, and it would be a shame to miss him before he took off. Oh, well, he's sadly, he's not in his office when she arrives, but he left another message, or rather a, a message painting thing, himself in a towel at a lakeside. Touching it plays that message that he's off on vacation, but his assistant will take care of the oldest house while he's away. He left behind little visions and humming for her to follow. It leads her through maintenance to a light switch cord back to the Ocean View Motel, which is looking a little gross around the edges. This time she goes into the janitor's room rather than the black pyramid door, and she finds another cord, which takes her to the Black Rock Quarry. It's like she's on a wild goose chase with a slightly bored middle-aged European man, but a restricted area has been opened up for her. It leads down deep into presumably the Black Rock depths, and everything here is weirdly symmetrical. It's not natural or wild. It's kind of uncomfortable to look at all the pillars stretched out neatly into nothing. But this is where Adi has been leading her, and a good assistant doesn't question their boss. She winds up at what looks like an old base camp. Images of Adi's vacation start appearing alongside his grunting and self-talk. He certainly is a strange one. He eventually appears, though, playfully asking if she had missed him or if she got piss in her sock. Well, he's well-meaning, and he tells her that it's all right if she interrupts his vacation. He knows that she needs help. He gives to her a cassette player and tells her that the song in it will get her through the maze so that she can go do her job, and then back to vacation time. But as for the director, now is a good time to wrap up loose ends. Claim objects of power, contain altered items, fight dangerous fiends and foes, help faculty as much as possible, secure control points around the oldest house, beat up the former again, talk to some plants. It's not only her job to do so, but she will need all the power that she can get for what's to come. When she's ready, Jesse returns to the ashtray maze, and it's a bit of rock and roll from the old gods of Asgard, the band of Tor and Odin Anderson that allows her to run through the maze. So long as that song is playing, she can move freely around. 
Lots of shooty shooty bang bang, psychedelic hallway shifting, perspective changes, walking on the ceiling, just another typical mission within the oldest house. Once through, she has to walk the harrowing hallway of the firebreak to reach a new side of the house. And here, Trench appears again, talking a bit about the past. He refused to be a passive director, yet he was not power-hungry either, not like Northmore was. He was involved, he expected results and excellence. Trench says that what they brought back from that slide, Slidescape 36, the desert homeworld of Polaris, it changed things. And something else there he knows changed him. He found his meaning there, and no one realized that what had impacted him even existed within that place. But now they know it as the hiss. It infected the director. It changed him. It made him paranoid. It's how they got him to turn on the projector. How all of this happened. But Trench believed that he was saving the Bureau, not dooming it. The hiss had used him. But Jesse will see that stop here. Dimensional research is not a large, sprawling place like other sectors of the oldest house. At the end of the main hallway are stairs leading up, covered in red sand. Atop it, she can sense that there was once a doorway here. The slide projector was turned on, and there was a doorway to Polaris' homeworld right here. It's closed now, but she can still feel the resonance of it. She can see the pillars of the desert like an imprint. In a room overlooking the red sands, Jessie finds the slide projector was moved one last time. She thinks that maybe Dr. Darling did it, but why would he do that? Why move it again? The departed doctor left his notes and tapes all over the place, explaining the desert world, what they found there, that Trench's medical exam showed nothing amiss when he came back, of the creation of HRAs and of Hedron itself. The discovery of Hedron changed everything for Darling, and then Jesse sees it. Hedron itself. While Hedron and Polaris are not the same entities, they feel the same. Polaris is strongest when near Hedron. It's like a father's resonance. And feeling Polaris so strongly is a shock to the director. She has seen this before in that other world when she was a child. To her, this is Polaris. It's like Hedron has brought her to life. Dr. Darling knew that he would be gone before the hiss arrived. Hedron had told him something, told him of what was going to happen to him, and it terrified the man. He started acting strangely, taking his clothes off and speaking in nonsense. So now Jesse knows that Darling is gone, but to where? Not even he knew. It's possible that they'll never really know. In his place, and in the place of all of Trench's former leading staff members, she will need to appoint replacements eventually. The door to Hedron's holding area is protected by a massive HRA to keep it safe from the hiss. Jessie questions if she even should remove the HRA to get into the chamber, but Polaris assures her that it's okay, because they need to get into that chamber. And as soon as she's in, the hiss attack... Accompanied by Dylan's smiling face, the insidious red of the hostile resonance enters the room, and Jessie begins a fight to save Hedron itself. She must go around the room to the many siphons around the entity and cleanse them of his corruption, all while fighting the hiss itself at its strongest. And as she goes from point to point, she can't help but yell profanity and frustration at what is going on here. The hiss consume everything they can find, even this, even the good things, even the helpful things, it just ruins them. It is a long fight, a huge process that wraps around the entirety of the room. The safety structures holding Hedron down are broken in the process and the siphons are constant. When she finally cuts off the last one, sends the hiss away from this place, it's just too late. Hedron cracks open and falls to the ground. And Jessie, she truly despairs. She weeps that she's sorry, asking if Polaris is still there. She can't hear her anymore. 
the hiss start creeping into her mind, driving her to the edge of sanity with the feeling of losing control. And for a brief moment, she begins to speak in the Dada's poetry of Alan Wake. When she snaps to, she's in a boring nightmare. She's worked janitorial jobs before. She feels more at home with Audie in the cleaning rooms than she does in the director's office. But this is the worst sort of day-to-day, the mundane kind. Deliver mail, clean up other people's coffee cups, scan some forms, be nice, professional, welcoming. All the while, the more important people laugh and carry on enjoying their work, lauding it over others. The only one that really seems to pay her any mind is Audie. He asks her if she's sure that she's not lost. Maybe she can find herself in the director's office, eh? In there, the old director, Zachariah Trench, is sitting, and he too acknowledges her presence. He welcomes her, tells her that she should be proud, and to not worry about her current position. He started out as a lowly agent too, after all. When she picks up the outgoing mail, she flashes to another vision of herself in her director's chair, wondering what's happening. She's not being herself. She knows that this is not herself. She can't feel Polaris anymore. And then Dylan shoots her in the head with the service weapon. Then she's back in front of the task board, and she knows that she has forgotten something. She can't feel anything, and she knows that something is supposed to be in there. She needs to snap out of it or wake up. This isn't real. She ditches the task board and runs back up to Audie. He tells her that she needs to keep trying. She's getting closer. She tries to go into Trench's office, but he won't let her in, so she goes back to her tasks. Kept mail, scanning, images of her brother haunt her as she goes about. Agents wearing HRAs, spasming in the bathroom, or being non-responsive in meeting rooms. It's bits of the real world, her memory leaking in. When she gets the order to take the director his mail, she finds him at the desk being very paranoid over something, talking to himself about a plan to save the Bureau. He confesses to everything he did. Jesse hears his plan in detail how he turned on the slide projector and opened a door for the hiss. He moved the slide projector out of the dimensional research area, not Dr. Darling. He took it to the nostalgia department, and he let the hiss in. In his mind, they had already been invaded. His peers, his friends, his co-workers, they were all plotting against him. This was all because of Hedron and his resonance. He just knew it. It had taken control of everything. But the hiss would save them all. It would save the Bureau. When he notices Jesse in the room with him, he regains his senses for a moment and he tells her about his progression with the hiss. On that expedition to the desert world of Polaris and Hedron, something had gotten into his ear. It hurt, and then it didn't. It was a whisper, like in a dream, and it only made sense to him, but in the waking world, it was nonsense. He lost himself, he grieved it. But whatever was within him now, it felt like he had found something. Then came paranoia and fear, the drive to do something about it. The irrational became perfectly rational to him. It all led to a disaster that nobody really saw coming, the hiss. And when it was all done, the hiss made Trench kill himself in his office, a sad end to a man that did his best to serve with dignity. And the same fate awaits her if she doesn't wake up. She's back in front of the task board again, and she knows that this is all in her head. She ignores her tasks and gets the director's mail. She needs to see what's inside the office. Audie warmly cheers her as she approaches. He knows that he has picked a good assistant. Things will be okay. Within the director's office, Trench is captured in his babble speech, now unresponsive to her approach. She picks up the service weapon, and she ends Trench's madness. She knows what it all means. This is her mess to clean up now. It's her fight. She's the director, after all. 
The hotline rings, and this time, it's Casper Darling on the other end. With a classified message for the director of the FBC, he has sad news. Hedron is gone now. But Hedron was not the source of this world's resonance. It was a catalyst, yes, but Jesse needs to go to his office. The end game will be waiting for her there. She walks through muted colors, barely in control of herself. Colors and easy thinking return to her when she passes through the Ocean View Motel. The hiss aren't here. She can breathe and think for a moment. She has pieced it all together, understands terminologies and meanings. She can speak with full comfort on the nature of the Ocean View Motel itself. And she realizes that she is in control of where this place takes her. It's dream logic that she has the power to shape. On one of the doors is a picture of herself, and within it is, well, herself. But... It's actually Polaris, taking a familiar form to speak with her. Without Hedron, they lost connection for a while. It's how the hiss got into Jessie's head. But like this, with direct contact, Polaris can rejoin her, stay with her, without Hedron acting as Polaris's catalyst. And with this beautiful reunion, the two will never be separated again. And Jessie can return to the oldest house to perform her duties as the director of the FBC. She emerges at the doorway to the Hiss world, their source, what's been leaking out into the oldest house. Her brother Dylan floats beneath an inverted black triangle. She knows that he is still here, locked inside, just like she was, and she's going to get him out. Jessie Faden fights her way up the alien architecture of this plane, taking on waves of Hiss infected intent on stopping her ascent. It feels like hours of fighting in crimson red, hearing the nonsense of the hiss shooting at beings that were once humans. This is a place where all her accumulated power is needed, this final push into the unknown. The moment that she gets the chance, she runs for the top of the structure where Dylan floats. And as she's done so many times to objects of power and altered items, she begins to cleanse him of his corruption. The first time she tried to do this, it killed the infected, it killed the victim, but this time she is stronger, Polaris is stronger, and Dylan is powerful in his own right. She succeeds in pushing the hiss out of her brother's mind. And finally, finally, she turns off the slide projector, she cuts off the hiss, and she saves the Federal Bureau of Control. Dylan doesn't awaken, though. The process leaves him in a coma, and after the fact, Jesse isn't sure of what's left in there, if he'll ever wake up. And while she has succeeded in stopping the source of the hiss, this is far from the end of her work. The hiss that remain within the oldest house are still alive, and so long as even one of them remains, the oldest house cannot resume functioning. It is her job to handle this, to see the oldest house and the FBC made whole again. Jesse Faden would go on to select new heads of staff, Emily Pope as head of research, Simon Arish as head of security, and more would come to follow. Further immediate issues would arise, however. Trench's old head of operations, Helen Marshall, would vanish for some secret mission. Well, she decided to go into the Foundation. She got it in her head to blow up the nail. See, Marshall trusted Jesse Faden as director, but she did not trust the board. She thought the FBC would be better off without them around, so she wanted to destroy this world's link to the astral plane. Besides, if the nail was gone, the hiss couldn't infect that too. In her mind, it was a win-win situation, except... She didn't blow the nail all the way up. Helen Marshall was infected by the hiss, and Jesse Faden had to venture down there to repair the nail and then put Marshall down. And then, not long after, while Jesse was just minding her own business, taking care of the oldest house, that man appeared, the one that she saw briefly in the Panopticon. 
He's writing about a distress call being sent to her, investigation sector, he says, and it's just too interesting to not go check out, right? Well, now officially enter Alan Wake. He's been stuck in the dark place for about nine years at this point. She doesn't realize the impact that this man has had on all the events that have taken place here, how he kind of brought it all together. He wrote the part of the villains and then the hero, the role that she rose to fill. And now he's beginning to transmit his own SOS. Alan Wake wrote of her para-utilitarian abilities, of Polaris, of her very nature as the director. And gosh, it's just so spicy to see it in action, knowing what all of it means, right? Isn't it? Breathe it in, friends. We've made it to the payoff. 63 pages later, firm handshakes all around. Where Alan Wake is now is very far away, so his signal to her is weak, and he has very little influence now. But even as weak as he might be in this case, Alan Wake's writing still holds power. He writes of a dark presence within the FBC, a dark presence that was cut off from its source. And while it's weak, it's still very, very dangerous, and it's inside the oldest house. And it was all the more dangerous because, well, the Hiss had found it. And this being that was just infected by the dark presence now had the Hiss within it as well. The elevator would take her to where she needed to go, to the investigation sector. There, she would find out more about the Bright Falls AWE. This place was abandoned long ago. Something got out of containment and it was too dangerous to remain here, so staff abandoned the sector to keep it locked away. There are plenty of old notes about staff, past and present, old reports full of redactions, new altered items to read about. But this place is kind of a ghost town. She does, however, find a light switch cord, and that takes her to the Oceanview Motel. That man's voice is coming from one of the rooms. A new door is open, one with a swirl on it. And inside, a scene is playing out between the writer Alan Wake and a slightly different Alan Wake. Jessie doesn't intrude upon this. She just observes it from afar. And the confused man, Alan Wake, asks who the other man is. He says that his name is Tom Zane, the poet from the stories, though nowadays the only Thomas Zane that folks know about is a European filmmaker. Jessie could have sworn that he was a poet, but her psychiatrist insisted that she was wrong. Anyways, this supposed Tom Zane, who definitely is not actually Mr. Scratch just playing his games, right? Well, Tom Zane tells Wake that his old appearance was just a role that he was playing. Zane says that they've been working together on a project, but Wake is consumed with confusion. There's darkness all around him that won't hold still, but the man claiming to be Zane says that they're close to being done. Wake's been doing a lot of writing. He's found a way to escape and it will work in time. But Wake knows that his double, Mr. Scratch, is somewhere out there causing harm, but Zane says that he's got it all under control. Well, that's the end, and it was kind of weird, right? What was in that room kind of became Alan Wake's new reality, his life. Jesse knows his name, knows of the Bright Falls case, but what the hell is he doing here? In his next transmission, Wake writes to Jesse about Dr. Emil Hartman. The FBC was really unhappy with his practices in his clinic. They took all his work and they shut him down. He was lucky that he didn't get locked away for what he had been doing. And after all of it was gone, Alan Wake wrote that Emil Hartman needed to take an expedition all his own down into Cauldron Lake. He dove to the bottom and came face to face with the dark presence. He was taken by it, turned into a puppet. The FBC had been surveilling him. They got him out of the lake, brought him back to the oldest house, and locked up the thing that had been Hartman. 
but eventually he got loose. He was why the sector had been abandoned, which means Hartman is still walking around unchecked. And though he became weaker once he was cut off from the source of the Dark Presence, he was infected by his resonance. That is the terrible foe that she must track and kill. Hartman's existence is a threat to all. She makes it back to investigations and pretty quickly figures out how to handle the globs of darkness that block off some of the areas, hit him with light. Alan Wake's transmissions clue her into the fact that he wrote the events that brought her here. He wrote about the Hiss and the FBC altogether. They were things that all existed independently of one another, and they were written into a story that created a new hero within her and within the FBC. What notes and logs she finds about this Dr. Emil Hartman make him sound immensely unlikable. He's the sort of person that just can't understand why he's not the most interesting thing in the room. And when Jesse finds the thing that had been Hartman, well, time to take it a bit more serious. The Dark Presence made him shadowy, a frightening being, but the hiss stretched him, remade him into this. And thus begins her rounds of combat with this beast. The only thing Hartman is weak to is light. Light him up and then knock him down. Each time she bests him, he retreats into a different area of the sector. Eventually, he'll run out of places to hide, but she has to keep up in her pursuit. And it's actually Fred Langston who helps to guide her on this, that strange warden of the Panopticon. He acts as an intermittent guide for her as she goes through the sector hunting down Hartman. She learns more about the group called the Blessed, the enigmatic group of paranatural criminals intending to create altered items for their own personal gain. There's a reason that it is so harshly prosecuted. As the director, Jesse will need to be well aware of groups like this that exist that could harm innocent life if it means creating altered items. No tragedy was too big for some of these people if it meant that they got something paranatural out of it. Jesse Faden, with the help of her fateful sidekick, Langston, manages to destroy Emil Hartman. Good riddance. But then there's still the issue of Alan Wake himself. It's troubling that he is trapped within that dark place. And if he does manage to write a way for him to escape it, will he bring the dark presence with him? If he gets out, will it just release some great evil upon the world? And if his writings had set the stonework for all the events to take place here in the oldest house, what was he capable of writing? But until the hiss are completely cleansed from the oldest house, the final lockdown, it can't be lifted. They cannot resume normal function as an agency. They may not have time for that, though. Langston starts to get a transmission on his terminal. An altered world event is beginning. But there's something really weird about it, because the date on it is a few years in the future, and it's happening in Bright Falls. It shouldn't be possible for them to be receiving this signal, and yet, here it is and there have been no on-site agents reporting unusual activities. This is a warning of what is to come, and it was kind enough to give them time to prepare. Because sooner than you would think, the Dark Presence will return, an altered world event will begin, and at the heart of it will be the return of the writer, Alan Wake. 